Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Uh, if you guys like this at all, if you like the show, if you like the podcast, then please consider leaving me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Um, leave me a comment. Let me know what you think of the episode. I will follow up on those uh, for now until they get too crazy. Some of you guys are already too crazy, but I will still follow up with you. Um, thanks for supporting the show on Patreon and Anchor and all that good stuff. Um, appreciate you guys and appreciate all the all the support and all the thoughts and ideas. You guys are awesome. Um, today is a really fun episode. It's like a couple years in the making here. For me, I have with me uh, Paul Vanderclay, and we're going to be talking about the meaning crisis, whether there still is a meaning crisis or not. Uh, Jordan Peterson, his answer to it, uh, and some C.S. Lewis. So right in my wheelhouse and uh, also right in in Paul's wheelhouse. So I'm really, really excited for this episode. So without further ado, let's bring him in. Paul, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. It's great to be here. Yeah. Uh, The wisdom beard, by the way, is looking great. I know you're you're talking about that in one of your recent episodes, but the longer it gets, the more wisdom you have. Yeah, it it just grows and grows and grows. I mean, it would take over everything, and so then I, at some point, it's like I can't. I the whole purpose of a beard is so that I don't have to shave, Mm -hmm. and then once it gets too long, then it's like I have to groom it. It's like I can't do that, so then I cut it off again, and it just keeps growing back. (laughs) I love that. Um, So, Paul, can you explain for for those who don't know? Uh, you are unfamiliar with your project. Can you just explain for us uh, what what is it that you're up to? That's a good question. I don't always know. I I started on this. Okay, so I'm a pastor of a small local church in the Christian Reformed Church, which is a Dutch Calvinist denomination. And I've been I was a foreign missionary before this. Uh, my father was a Christian Reformed minister. My grandfather was a Christian Reformed minister. So. We've been in this business for generations. Um, my father's church was sort of a racial reconciliation church back in the 60s and 70s, back in when that's what racial reconciliation was back in the 60s and 70s. And then I, I came into this church in the 90s, and it's just been a small, just working a small local ministry. I've always been interested in thoughts and ideas. I kept a blog for a long time. I still do. I still have it. And my blog is basically my filing cabinet. Pastors pastors keep filing cabinets because we have to keep illustrations and ideas for sermons. That's right. And along the way, I decided to use a blog for my filing cabinet because I could access it anywhere. I could take things from anywhere and throw it into the blog. And also other pastors would have access to it. And so I would do writing projects and all kinds of things on my blog. And, and a number of times I thought about getting serious about writing a book but each time I would get closer to that, I reflected on the fact that almost nobody in my congregation read books, but they did watch TV and they, and so I started playing around with YouTube and videos. I started the Freddie and Paul show with a member of my church that I, which I still do on my channel. 
And then I found Jordan Peterson, and I really wanted to interact with his ideas. I've been reading Rod Dreher's blog for quite a while, Rod Dreher and Andrew Sullivan and a whole bunch of different bloggers, and I really liked how they were able to take what was going on in the world and sort of bring it into the blog and chew on it and and come to some conclusions. And I sort of wondered if that would be possible with video. Mm-hmm. And I was very interested in the work of Jordan Peterson. And I thought, well, how can I, so I'd blogged about it a little bit, but that didn't seem to work. I tried talking to friends about it, but who's going to sit and listen to how many hours of video, unless you're, you're really motivated to, which I was. And so I thought, I wonder if I could just use a screen capture program and sort of blogify um, commentary on what Jordan Peterson is talking about. Mm-hmm. So I made a video. And I had had, I think, 15 YouTube subscribers, and most of them were people who wanted to, I would sometimes record my sermons and throw them up because people would miss one. Or the Freddie and Paul show, which was mostly Freddie's mom wanted to see it, Freddie wanted to see it, so i throw it up on YouTube. And then I did this video about Jordan Peterson, and the next day I had, you know, over 100 subscribers, and the day after that I had 300 subscribers, and it was like, well, this is strange. Mm-hmm. And what I mostly wanted out of the project were some conversation partners because I wanted to talk about what I thought was interesting and important. And I discovered that YouTube could be a good platform for this. So I kept making videos and I kept reading the comments and I kept having conversation partners. And then I'd start getting people from Sacramento who said, you know, we should really do a meetup so we can talk about these ideas because I don't have anybody to talk about them with. So Mm -hmm. I'm a pastor of a local church. I have a space. So, okay, let's do a meetup. And a dozen people showed up the first time. And as a pastor of a small, dramatically unsuccessful reformed church, I found that to be a revelation. I thought 12 random strangers will show up to talk about Jordan Peterson. And the next month I did it again. And another, you know, 10, 12, 15 new people showed up. And I thought, huh, well, this is interesting. So, and then people who didn't live in Sacramento wanted to talk to me about it. And so I was having conversations on Skype and Zoom and things like that. And I began to wonder, I bet you other people would like to engage in this conversation too. So I started when appropriate, I would ask if uh, they would be willing to let me record it. And then if the conversation was appropriate, I asked if they'd be willing to let me post it on my YouTube channel. And some people said yes. So I started posting that. And then more people started watching that just for the commentary and the conversations, but they wanted to be part of the conversation. So I'd record those. And then the local meetup guy said, we really need to have a discord server. So we started one of those. So we had that. And I also continued to use, you know, my earlier videos were mostly about Jordan Peterson, but then I thought, you know, the way I used to use my blog, which was sort of an avenue for thinking out loud, I should just keep doing that with YouTube and see if anybody cares or wants to watch. And in fact, people kept watching that. And so my YouTube channel is sort of has three things as commentaries on Jordan Peterson or other people on the internet that I think on YouTube often that I think are important that I'd like to make comments about what they've put on. 
And that's sort of expanded into books. I do some reading and commenting on books now on my YouTube channel. And then monologue videos where I'm thinking out loud about something and basically invite my audience to think with me. So, you know, I read the comments or at least as many as I can get to to get a sense of that. And then the conversations. And that's what I've been doing now for three years. And it's continued to grow. And, And for me, in terms of my church work, I there's this great passage in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul rents out the hall of of Tyrannus and I think it's in I think it's in Corinth it's in Corinth or Ephesus I'm pretty sure it's in Corinth and you get the sense that Paul rents out this hall and what he does is sort of what happened at Athens in the Areopagus where Paul just talks to people and lectures and and this gets noted in in the book of Acts. And, you know, I was always amazed how we got all these Christians reading the book of Acts. Why? I've never heard a sermon on it. I've never heard anybody comment on this. But this seemed to be integral for the way the Apostle Paul engaged his culture. Mm-hmm. And one of the problems I've had with church is it, it seemed to me that for many people, church was the last place they might imagine that they could go to pursue a free, open-ended conversation where they could say heretical things, uh, share whatever thought was on their mind, and just just honestly, honestly explore the things that they were talking about. And as a pastor for a number of years— one of the things I began to notice with church small groups and things like that is that people in churches regularly get shamed for giving wrong answers. Right. That's a really bad thing for a church. Mm-hmm. Not that wrong answers are good, but that for all of us, the process of learning and discovery requires us to share what we think. And in fact, in our educational system, you give a test. And the most important about thing about a test is often the wrong answers. Get those questions wrong so the teacher can come and correct them. Well, people aren't necessarily that correctable, but I wanted a much more open space for conversation and discussion about what mattered most to people. And the church was the last place that this could happen. And pastors were some of the last people that people would approach for these conversations. And I thought, this, this is counterproductive to the work of the church. And via my videos and the meetups and my interest in Jordan Peterson and the interest that he has developed, I found that I could use myself as a pastor, I could use church space to actually have significant conversations with people. And in my opinion, as an outreach effort, it's far more effective than vacation Bible school mm-hmm. or you know, trunk a treat things. I mean, how many of these church events do we hold, which are of, you're never going to get a person to actually get anywhere near what we'd like to do with a person, which is actually have a meaningful conversation about the most important things in life. We're going to give them candy or we're going to get them junk food or hot dogs or a free babysitting and all those things. That's okay. But what I really want to do is get to the conversation and via YouTube and meetups and discord, I get to the conversation a whole lot faster. And to me and my con- my my conversation partners are a whole lot broader 
So for me, this was a far more effective evangelistic project than all of this stupid stuff that churches wind, wind up doing. So that is my project. Yeah. Well, that's huge. I, I'm I'm so glad that you went into that because it also helps me clarify my project as well. And I started my blog back in 2016 um, because I would get all these questions from the students I was discipling. I was working for this, I'm still working for this this campus ministry. And I thought, you know what? I answered this question via text like 12 times. I'm going to write it up and I could thumbs and um and then i'll write it up to you sorry about that paul are you there that's okay there we go i'm still here yeah, yeah i'll add i'll add that um so so i started the blog because uh i was answering all these questions again and again with my thumbs i thought i could type this a little bit better think it through and then that kind of turned into exactly what you said where um it was a it was a file cabinet for all of my thoughts and like before this conversation, I just read uh, a, a research paper I wrote on Jordan Peterson for religion in the modern world. And I refer to that every time I talk about Peterson, because that was the best way I've ever thought about it. Uh, I read through Maps of Meaning in a couple months, and I, I analyzed it the way I would analyze it best. And so it's been super duper helpful. And then, yeah, having these conversations with people like you, trying to get your ideas out there to a broader audience. Right now, yours is, is broader than mine. Uh, our projects are, are, are similar. Um, I love the conversations that you're starting. Uh, when it comes to like the meaning crisis, I think that's probably what has. Um, well, you you tell me, man. Did did Peterson get famous because there was a meaning crisis, or um, did he get famous kind of on his own, and then that exposed a meaning crisis? What do you, what do you think about that? Uh, I think Peterson got attention because he violated a public orthodoxy, a new public orthodoxy. He dared to challenge it. But then when people discovered him, they discovered that his message was very clearly addressing a meaning crisis, especially among men. Now, Peterson never used that meaning crisis language. That meaning crisis language comes from John Verveke, who's a colleague of Jordan Peterson, who you know I've been in conversation with. Because Verveke and some of his partners, Christopher Mastopietro and some others, were looking in the culture and said, there is, in fact, a meaning crisis. And this is, in many ways, women biologically have a little leg up in this because mm -hmm. once you have a baby, um, you that you've, you know, a woman has carried that baby for nine months. And everything biological in that woman is focusing on the survival of that child. Mm -hmm. And so right there, there's an enormously meaningful endeavor that if a woman gets pregnant and keeps the child, she will, in fact, um, she that that will that will launch her in a journey. Men don't have that advantage. Mm -hmm. Men's, you know, if once once we hit as a culture, a point in which survival could be almost assured men no longer had a biological impetus towards certain kinds of meaningful activities. Mm -hmm. And in fact, a lot of the things in our culture have been pointing men away from meaningful activities. And this has, especially among young men caused what I think is a meaning crisis. Mm -hmm. And Jordan with his, emphasis on responsibility awakened that 
because he could, in a very compelling way, challenge young men to stop being Mm self-indulgent and even worse, self-pitying and take up heavy things and try to do something with their lives. And that really struck a chord for a lot of people. And it was also interesting. I mean, and Peterson mapped a lot of this out with with maps of meaning uh, in terms of how this is to work. But it's not, you know, Peterson by no means was the first person to hit on this. You know, and the evangelical world had been seeing this for a long time. You look at the whole Promise Keepers movement. Promise Keepers movement very much addressed the meaning crisis among evangelical men and challenged men to not simply use women for sexual pleasure, but to commit and 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 pointed them to the fact that to be a man means being able to not only be strong, but focus your strength and harness your strength towards much longer term good ends. Yeah. And some of the most challenging good ends we can find for men are commitment to one woman, marriage, family, all sorts of things that you know, conservative Christians all across the board have been uh, prioritizing for a very long time, which increasingly the culture tends to discard. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've noticed, I'm, I'm, man, you helped me think through this so well, but I've noticed um, since I work with college athletes that it hits us after college, whereas it might hit some of the general population a bit earlier, especially amongst wrestlers. And I work primarily with wrestlers, but we still have that kind of single focused goal of, you know, we, we kind of know what it means to be a man for ourselves, right? It means being on top of the podium, which is not exactly what it means to be a man. But when you're done with that, now you spent your whole life. I started wrestling since first grade. And now who am I? What am I? Am I still a man? And so I found my identity in Christ, but I still straight up wrestle with the idea of what does it mean to be a man almost every single day? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and that makes perfect sense with athletes because an athlete is doing something extremely meaningful, extremely biological, Mm -hmm. extremely intense. And within the realm of athletic competition, all of those factors are in play. Mm -hmm. Once you leave there, what does the world tell you to do? And right now, there's a lot of signals being sent to men that basically says, sit down, shut up, don't do anything, wait until you're told. It's not an exactly meaningful context in which to in which to act. Now, for a very long time in our industrialized society, men have had to sort of um, John Verveke uses this word exaptation, where now suddenly maybe all of this. All of this ambition and energy and drive can be focused into ministry or mm. business or, you know, even into family, you know, building a home, building a career, building a place where, you know, where where life can happen, where people can strive. But athletes who have been focused on doing it individually, physically or as a team, mm. they're going to have to work a transition that gets that that basically all of that mental stuff is going to have to be repurposed probably towards much more theoretical um and and less physical means yeah. and but again our culture over the last while has pretty much been 
discouraging men to do that. And when you do that, you're setting men up for a real crisis. And so it's no, it's no, it's, it shouldn't be a surprise that something like video games Mm -hmm. would become, you know, I, I, I'm not against video games per se, but they can become a huge trap for men. Yeah. And there are lots of these traps around, but video games are a big one, especially for men, because they 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 do the exaptation of our brain. And okay, now we're playing Call of Duty or Fortnite or all of these things where mentally, you know, we're we're acting like athletes and warriors, yeah. but physically we're sitting there like this. <laughs> right. Yeah. Paul, I don't know. I don't I hope this isn't too graphic or anything, but it's it's like well, maybe I shouldn't say it, but I'm gonna say it. it's like um, it's like masturbation, and then you're you're not you're not uh, incentivized to go out and find a wife and right. to go procreate. Right. It's it's the same kind of thing uh, yeah. happening. Though you know, I don't play video games myself. A lot of my friends do, but it's that's that's the point you're getting at when you yep. do it to that extent, and you're you're filling that that meaning void uh, with video games. That's what's up. That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um. So. Yeah, this it's it's so interesting. After after college, I got really into caring for animals. So I got some giant African bullfrogs, and uh, they I got a, made a video. It's got thirty seven million views now, and part of yeah, I have it, to look that up. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Part of part of the podcast is to redeem myself, so that's not my legacy to the world. It's just a bunch of stupid frogs. But frogs um, aren't stupid. God made frogs. It's true. Jesus it's true. died for frogs. He really did. <laughs> And yeah. I say those things that people look at me. Like, what do you mean Jesus died for frogs? Well, Jesus mm. died for this world. For God so loved the world. The world includes frogs. So yeah, don't feel too good. embarrassed about your that's African uh, frog video. <laughs> Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Um, so, so yeah, I got I get into that, um, and it was kind of some, caring for something with my hands. You know, there there were a lot of work, and that was nice. And then Peterson told me to clean my room, so I, I kind of did that. My wife. Uh, is a little bit happy about that. I still am working on that that aspect of the Petersonian uh, ideology. But I wanted to ask you, so even though meaning the meaning crisis isn't part of his language, how does he address the meaning crisis? He addresses it when he makes responsibility so central to his missional message to the world. And you hear them say this all the time, when he says, when I get up in front of an audience and I talk about responsibility, the theater, there's a hush in the theater. And so he's recognizing that. And if you look at the, the core of his message is that meaning is sort of an internal gyroscope. Do what is, is, is one of his most important rules for life is do what is meaningful, not what is expedient. Because mm-hmm. meaning is sort of this internal gyroscope that can point you in a right direction. The problem with meaning is that there is many activities in the world can be meaningful. Mm-hmm. Not every meaningful activity, in fact, is in alignment with the creator's will for the world or the redeemer's will for the world. That's mm-hmm. So that's the weakness of, of Jordan Peterson's sort of gyroscopic truthiness uh, method that, well, there's, there's a lot of people pursuing meaningful activities in the world doesn't mean that they're good. Yeah. Well, and I, <clears throat> that's what I found helpful about Lewis's first and second things. You yep. can make a lot of second things into meaningful things, but 
I, I've heard it from Olympic gold medalists. They get the gold medal and they're like, well, what now is the loneliest night of my entire life? And it's because you treated a second thing as if it was a first thing. Right. What I found really helpful in Peterson's uh, language, though, is that when Christian pastors talk about happiness and, and we want to denigrate happiness because it comes and goes. And that's good. I like that. But they always they, they always throw in joy. And it doesn't for me as a man, as a wrestler, I'm like, dude, our conception of joy in this in this culture is not very masculine. It's not very exciting to me. Mm, but if you said meaning, if you said meaning instead of happiness, I can get on board with that because my whole life was about pursuing meaning, even when I don't feel happy. And so I've, I've been really I've been really excited about that. What do you think about the relation between meaning and joy? Is 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 Peterson saying the same thing we're saying or is it a little bit different? I would first differentiate between happy, happiness, and joy. Mm-hmm. Uh, C.S. Lewis, for C.S. Lewis, joy was something that was definitely not mere happiness because joy for Lewis especially was often something tinged with nostalgia. Mm-hmm. And also in the gospel, joy is something that can also be coupled with suffering. And I think when joy and suffering, you know, for example, the book of Hebrews talks about, well, why did, why did Christ pursue? We were his meaningful quarry. I mean, humanity, fallen, broken humanity was his meaningful quarry. Why did he pursue us? He pursued us out of joy. And so I think, I think joy is actually a better term because I think joy and meaning are not can't in any way be sort of set against each other. Mm -hmm. Whereas Peterson is right when he says happiness is a fine thing, but meaning trumps happiness. And every, every woman that has a child, every man that goes to war, Mm. you know, they have the child for meaning and joy childbirth and child raising happy, sometimes not happy other times. Um, And so, so that I would, I would differentiate happiness from joy there Mm -hmm. because joy is a far deeper thing that can in fact include and often must include suffering. Mm -hmm. And that's where it connects up with meaning because meaning often includes suffering. Yeah. Yeah. Often. Yeah. Like the, the more suffering you go through, to accomplish something, the more worthwhile it is. Or that's right. And and I was just reading, um, yeah, Beyond Order, and he's talking about this in in one of his rules. Or I think about collecting uh, things. I love collecting books and stuff like that. And if you find a first edition that's really rare, it was hard to get, and it gave it more value, more meaning. That's right. So, so then, how about for for Peterson? Um, is so you can't have? Would you say you can't have joy without meaning? Yeah, I would say that. Okay, I think yeah. I think meaning is integral to joy. Okay. So if you stop at joy or if you stop at meaning and you're you're more of a, a stoic stoic kind of person I think sometimes Peterson sounds a little bit um stoic which is okay I kind of like that too. Should we push him to has he not reached the pinnacle is joy the the pinnacle and maybe meaning's the the ground level and he needs to continue up or is he saying the exact same thing that we're saying? No, I think you're right. So, so Jordan, Jordan will say, find something heavy to carry, mm-hmm. Ca- drag that, drag that heavy cross up to the top of the hill. And so I did, 
uh, Rebel Wisdom, the guys from Rebel Wisdom came to California and did a little interview with me. And I said exactly what you said right now. I said, Peterson, Peterson is really has a stoicism about him. Hmm. What's on top of pick up that heavy cross and drag it off up off the hill, drag it up the hill. And what's at the top of the hill? And so then actually David Fuller from Rebel Wisdom had an interview with Peterson. And Peterson said, well, tell Paul Vanderclay, you know, the kingdom of God or the city of God is at the top of the hill. And I thought that's right. The mm-hmm. city of God. But and I and his recent conversation with Peugeot really brought this out. Yeah. You're going to have difficulty. Even at least mentally realizing what the direction of that is until you understand who is the king of the city of God. Mm. And, and, and you're going to have to have a part of, part of the line that, that Peterson is struggling with is that he, he understands, I I thought um, there was a, there was a, a UK, uh, he's now a priest, used to be an Anglican priest, but, you know, he said, and he also was quite well-versed in, in Jung, he said, you know, for Peterson, Jesus is still an archetype. Yeah. But the, you know, part of what Christianity asserts, and Peterson is so close to this, is that yeah. the logos, the archetype gets made flesh. Mm-hmm. And what is integral to Christianity with that is if, when the archetype is made flesh, when the logos is made flesh, that means that we too can incarnate the archetype. Mm-hmm. We too can, the logos can inhabit us. Yeah. Um, you know, and in, in the, in first, in John one, not first John one, but the gospel of John chapter one, the prologue of the gospel of John, you know, the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. Right. That's what the text says. Mm-hmm. And that's what Christianity says. And so Peterson is right there asking, how much, how far can we go to appropriate the logos? And a Christian can say, it was done perfectly in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And if that has happened, that then energizes his followers to drag that cross up the hill with a much fuller knowledge, you know, pursuing joy, but with a much fuller knowledge about how far it can happen. And I understand Peterson's pessimism and disappointment in Christians and the church. I, you will, you know, for, for other people at seminary, I so before I did any of this, I worked with a lot of church planters and church planters are a really fun group of people because they're idealistic, idealistic. And they basically look around and they say, you know, I've never been in a church that, I, that has really fully satisfied me. So I'm going to plant a church that right. really fully satisfies me. And when people come, young men come to me and say they want to do that, I say, you go for it. You go to it. You, you know, you pour yourself into that meaningful, joyful activity about planting that church. And invariably, 5, 10, 15 years later, I'll talk to them and they're like, yeah, but it still disappoints me. Yeah, well, now welcome to Calvinism. You know, we in this <laughs> right. age, we only get so far up that hill. I get that. Yeah. But Peterson is right that the pursuit of it is fundamental. But the thing that a Christian has is, is he can say, you know what? We are going to get there. Yeah. We are going to get there. We really are. And 
if it's just an archetype, if it's just an idea, if it's just a pattern, you have no promise of getting there. And that's exactly why the physicality and the historicity of the resurrection are integral. And why, as Jonathan Peugeot laid out for Peterson, this is why Christians keep insisting if the resurrection is just a really cool story, that gives me no hope that I'll get there. And so knowledge that you will get there makes the pursuit of getting there all the more passionate and joyful and can really mobilize us to get there. Yes. I love that. That idea that the the veil has been torn and, you know, uh, the world as a forum for action has met the world of things in Christ, in the Logos coming down, and it actually happened. And we have someone, well, you know, we have the Holy Spirit living inside us, encouraging us to go on. We can smile. I forgot who said it. Maybe it's Nietzsche or, or maybe Bertrand Russell thought about Sisyphus rolling up the hill and thought, well, yeah, we have to think of him smiling. And that's us if we're dragging our cross up the hill because we can look to Christ and we can smile knowing that we're not we're not trying to instantiate the the true hero and and ride the the wave of order and chaos by ourselves. Right. But we have someone who's done it and right. he is the archetype and right. it gets me all fired up, but what I do like about Peterson about what what you've done in in drawing out Peterson's idea is the idea of carrying the cross in Christianity, at least in evangelical Christianity I grew up in, was always a nice little thing. You know, hey, you got to carry your cross. And it's like, well, if you think about that, it's a torture device. It is really hard. And we're following the crucified Savior. And it is, a, he draws out the burden and how the burden is meaningful. It's a it's a torture device imposed upon you by your enemies. Hmm. And that is something, I mean, it was, it was blatantly obvious to the Christians in the first century up, up until the third or the fourth century when crucifixion was finally abolished, basically because Jesus, Jesus in a lot of ways within the Christian world destroyed the cross. Right. They, they, could, they could never again use a cross unironically. Yeah. And so, but but that is what a cross is. It's it's the it's the torture device opposed upon you by your religious, political, and cultural enemies. Mm-hmm. And Jesus says, you you embrace that cross and you carry it. Yeah. Not to, you know, if if we were to take the Marvel Cinematic Universe and use those values to replicate the story of Jesus, Jesus would have in that, you know, once they had the cross, Jesus would have risen up, wielded that cross, and bludgeoned his enemies on his way up to Golgotha. Right. And Jesus does not do that. And again, if you get rid of the the Jesus of power that the Gospels clearly want to articulate for us, mm-hmm. it's not that he couldn't do that. Right. He doesn't do that. And that gets pointed to right there at the crucifixion, because, you know, the New Testament is so brief and the gospel accounts are so short. They're really booklets in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. But the one thing that makes the cut in terms of what Jesus adversaries said to him was mockery. He saved others. He cannot save himself. And right there in that is the point that, no, he is saving others by not saving himself. He can, he can come down from that cross. He could just like, 
you know, the Hulk or Thor or Superman. He could whip up that cross, use it to beat up those who put him on it. Mm -hmm. And that's what our culture says. Jesus won't do it. And the church still, that's a really hard thing for us to, for us to finally get our heads around and then embrace mm-hmm. how Jesus acts in his culture war. Yeah, that's a, that's such a great point. And I think for for different reasons, uh, people more on the on the left side want to see Jesus as my boyfriend, Jesus, <laughs> or or Jesus as uh, so unbelievably meek that he was carried you know against his will to the cross. And look at poor Jesus. And the other side, Jesus is the victim, and Jesus yeah. was a victim. Yeah, but that's not. He was not only a victim. It's not the full story. Yeah, that's right. And and the other side is Jesus. Uh, you know, he turned over tables too. You know, Jesus right. got angry, and he was righteous. Was righteous indignation. Yeah. And yeah, of course, for sure. But y- yeah, you have the the lion of the tribe of Judah clawing his way to the cross because of the joy set before him, and the the one who hold who holds the universe together, including the cross that he was hung on. Who could have, if he, I, I like to talk to my students about if he would have sneezed and just had like one instance of like, oh, this hurts, you know, one instance of weakness, he's exploding the universe, yeah. you know, and I would have, you know, but, but he doesn't because he's so strong. He's such a strong, and that's another point that Peterson brought out that you're not, you're not noble if you are just weak and unable to, to do harm, but you're actually more noble if you're able to do great harm and you restrain yourself. That's right. And we have that perfect example in the archetypal God man, you know, right. the archetypal man who Christ who, who came down for us. And I, that's why it's like Peterson, man, just keep going, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. He's right there. But you yeah. have to, again, you, you and many Christians within the church are actually where Peterson is, you know, mm-hmm. well, here they, they're just saying the right things. Yeah. Peterson has an understanding of what this leap will cost him. Mm-hmm. But you you do it. You you surrender. You finally surrender to Christ. Yeah. And you know my my favorite short definition of Christianity is someone who trusts Jesus more than they trust themselves. Mm-hmm. Because finally you say, okay, I I'm if I am my own savior and Lord, I've got really a lousy one, and I need a savior and Lord. Mm-hmm. That is better than myself, and so Jesus, I will trust in you. I will follow you. Yeah, yeah. I say something similar um, because it, this is where the, the point that he brought me to. Just I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll say whatever you want me to say, and I'll do whatever you want me to do. Right. Because I've tried it myself, and yeah. uh, I do what you said about Peterson's right. Where uh, I quoted it in my paper, he he said, you know, I'm scared. He didn't say he's scared, but he was nervous to admit God's existence because of the cost. And because he takes it so seriously. And I thought, how many Christians ought to be feeling that way? To say that I'm an image bearer of God means when I go and kick my dog out of anger, I'm telling that dog that God's a dog kicker and he kicks right. dogs in in unrighteous anger. Yep. It's just terrifying. You know, imagine thinking that without the gospel. But then even even more so, I'm a Christian. I represent Christ everywhere. I'm supposed to be saying, look, this is what Christ is like. I'm a little Christ. And that's terrifying to say that it's hard, but yeah, this is just things that, that Peterson's helped, helped kind of draw out, which I think are, is really helpful for the church. Um, yeah, Paul. So how, how would, how would Lewis, how does Lewis, how did Lewis address 
the meaning crisis. I know it's it, it might be um, uh, he, he was before this, perhaps, right? He's in. Oh, he's... he wasn't before the meaning crisis. Okay. Lewis, okay. Lewis had an enormous meaning crisis hmm. that he he needed help to get out of. And he got that help out of it via Tolkien, Dyson and his conversion to Christianity. Mm-hmm. The meaning crisis. So I like to I like to describe the meaning crisis in this way. On one hand, after through the Enlightenment, bit by bit, but especially the peak of modernity, really modernity really climaxed just before the First World War. And what we began to learn about the world outside of ourselves was the world is much more complex than we thought it was. And there's all this cause and effect that's going on. And so modernity is all about closing one eye of the manifest image so you can see through the scientific image, closing the one eye and saying, okay, the world has a whole bunch of cause and effect relationships. All right. Now, so one aspect is, wow, the world is really complex and deep and mysterious, and and we don't have anywhere near the handle on it that we thought we did. And the other element of the meaning crisis is we are part of this world, because what happens in modernity is we close one eye and we see the world and we say, I think I can see the world as it is. And so then we learn we can't see the world as it is. And then we begin to see ourselves and say, I, all those cause and effect relationships are in me. And we start to lose the self itself. Yeah. Yeah. So Lewis, of course, is, I've just started a new, started reading another Lewis biography. There are lots of good biographies about Lewis. And yeah. anybody who wants to understand Lewis, read a bunch of his biographies. But so Lewis, you know, grows up in this, in this home and his mother dies. His father is a good man. He loves him. He's not terribly able to be a good father in a lot of ways, but he's a hard worker and he's a smart guy. And he does encourage young Jack, Mm -hmm. but he doesn't really know how to raise his sons. And then Lewis's mother dies when he's six Mm -hmm. and his father doesn't know what to do. So he sends the boys off to boarding school and it's a horrible boarding school. Mm -hmm. And Lewis in some ways never forgives his father for that. But Lewis, who initially, you know, was immensely brilliant, of course, but also quite interested in mythology, basically has mythology crushed out of him and uses it as sort of a meaningful escape, sort of analogous to what video games are today. Mm-hmm. And he becomes he he gives up Christianity at a very young age and becomes sort of a hard bitten atheist. And his one of his greatest teachers, um, the great Kirk knock, Patrick, right? the great yeah. knock, yeah. is also a hard bitten atheist. And so Lewis sort of doubles down in that. And then, of course, Lewis goes has to go off and fight in the First World War. And he has exactly the right kind of injury that saves him, saves his life. And and has to spend most of the war in a hospital. And then he takes up with the mother of a buddy of his who was killed in the war and, you know, eventually winds up getting a university position as a tutor at at Oxford. And but Lewis and Tolkien both really have this enormous meaning crisis caused by the First World War. Mm hmm. And they have to find their way out of it. And the way they find their way out of it is story. 
Mm-hmm. And that's why Lewis and Tolkien, I mean, Tolkien, probably the greatest storyteller of the 20th century in the yeah. English language. They have to figure out their way out of it. And for Lewis, it happens. And and Peterson points this out in his conversation with Peugeot. Well, actually, later, Peterson tweeted this essay that Lewis writes of the myth becoming fact finally and it's like finally peterson yeah that's right right you that's that's you i'm glad you found it you're right um but that that is the point and so lewis in many ways my one of my favorite lewis books is one of his apologetics books miracles which is my favorite book yeah yeah it's a i think it's a terrific book because in that book he basically that entire book is basically how he walks himself out of his meaning crisis in the middle of the 20th century that's what that book is about and I think for that reason, Lewis is a very helpful guide in addressing the meaning crisis. And in a in the foreword to another book that I just recently found, which was something I'd never known that Lewis had written, it was the introduction. It was a book about the, oh, what was the name of the book? Uh, something about you know, heaven and earth. I found it when I was doing working on some of the Peugeot stuff. But Lewis had an introduction to that book, and I read it, and I thought he just lays out the meaning crisis in that introduction so yeah. perfectly. He just yeah. lays it right out, and so it's obvious that he was wrestling with it. And you know, so once I started working on the meaning crisis stuff, it became apparent that many Christians are by no means in the midst of a meaning crisis, like those who have rejected the church and the gospel. Hmm. And, you know, even John Verveke, who is in many ways, post-Christians, he's a, he's a non-theist, but very, um, you know, a very good conversation partner, very fair, very generous. He left Christianity. You can look at some videos that he's described that himself, but, you know, he's noted in his attempt to a, to try and find a religion that is not a religion, his entire project is about addressing the meaning crisis, but he will acknowledge that for many people going into an established religion like Christianity, you will find relief from your meaning crisis, mm-hmm. but they're just identifying as a Christian or being a part of the church might not quite do it for you in terms of your experience of a meaning crisis if you understand what's going on. And in fact, some in some ways, some areas of the church are sandbagging, especially young men. And um, I think this is part of the reason why increasingly some of the only churches we're going to find men in are going to be more conservative, you know, Protestant churches or some of the more ancient churches like the Orthodox and the Roman Catholic, yeah. because what's happening in our culture is simply accentuating the meaning crisis for men. That's part of the dynamic that we're seeing. Yeah, man. It, were you thinking um, uh, preface to Paradise Lost? Is no, that- no. The book is, it's a much, it's a book that I had never heard about. I, I came across it. I someone in a comment might have initiated it. I'll just pull up my Kindle library here a second, and uh, yeah, um, yeah. The the hierarchy of heaven and earth by D. <laughs> e. Harding. The introduction. I, I found the introduction by Lewis to be absolutely incredible, yeah. and I read it in one of my videos because if you read that introduction, it's like there's the meaning crisis. Yeah. Lewis lays the whole thing out. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah. the book itself didn't get much traction. I'm not sure how good a book it is. And Harding went into, into some very in, interesting, you know, unusual paths. But Lewis's introduction in that book is, and and you can just go to Amazon, you know, get the sample because the entire introduction's in the <laughs> sample and you don't have to buy the book. That's great. So, <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, uh, Paul, so so Lewis wrote this uh, this essay, which which was the precursor to miracles called De Futilitate. And, he, oh. and it, he's talking about um, he's talking to a group of men who are facing this meaning crisis because of uh, the Second World War. And they're about to go off. And it's very similar to um, it's, it's very similar to learning in wartime. You know, what, what's the point of, of learning if all our friends are dying and this whole world, Hitler's going to blow up the whole world? What's the purpose? And he develops the, the, the argument from reason, as it's come to be known, which he, he develops in the first four chapters or six chapters plus 12 and 13 and miracles. And I've I've thought uh, the argument from desire and morality, well, morality different, but desire his lived ontological proof doesn't work unless it's true. And that's what Lewis del- delves into in in miracles. He's no saying no proof works unless it's true. Right, right, right. right. That's, that's, <laughs> or no that's, proof should work unless right. it's true. That's by right. definition of yeah, the word, that's proof. a good point. Well, <laughs> so so I'm desiring something, and so there might be another world that I'm live that I'm supposed to be made for. But Lewis develops, and he says, "Look, the fact that we're self conscious shows that naturalism is a philosophy for boys, as he says." elsewhere um but but also that it's a, it's a pointing towards god it's another argument for him but the fact that you can reason at all where peterson takes his self-consciousness to say you know it's it's a represent it's a myth of when we snapped into uh self-consciousness and we we recognize our own futility our own um uh that, that we're we're naked we're naked apes that we are vulnerable our own vulnerability i wonder um what what role does truth play in the meaning crisis? Lewis's argument from desire, I find very parallel to the ontological argument. Yeah. One of the things in one of the things that um, so John Verveke is a is a cognitive scientist, and one of the things that cognitive science, which which of course Peterson delves in a lot to with his psychology, one of the things that cognitive science has revealed about us is that we're very bad at truth. Human mm. beings are very bad at truth, mm. and part of the reason, and and you can find this in the Bible all over the place, especially in the Book of Job. Mm. You know, the the conclusion to the Book of Job is basically. Job is screaming throughout the book, I want a hearing. And God finally says, all right. And okay, Job, you school me. Mm -hmm. Can you really school me? And and that's part of the difficulty we have with truth Mm -hmm. is that we, truth is bigger than us. And we are quite small. We are quite short-lived. Um, in order for us, and this is if you look at if you listen to Jordan Peterson's first conversation with Sam Harris and those those four videos, the, yeah, the, the pragmatist conversation, Vancouver one, yep. Peterson basically continues to hammer Sam Harris on, hey, look, everything we know about cognitive science and philosophy right now basically says that the world is too big, and the way that human beings actually manage to work productively in the world is we have to scale it down into much smaller 
lower resolution chunks in order to actually engage with it productively. So that's us. And what that means is we're always going to have problems with the truth. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're all, our view is always limited. It's always small. And, you know, it's interesting how, how many times the psalmist talks about this was too wonderful for me. Well, what does the psalmist mean by that? This is, it's too big for me. It's too hard for me. We can't do this. And the ancients knew this. And part of what happens in modernity is our, you know, we get too big for our britches, basically. Right. right. And so Christians go around talking about the truth in ways that they can't live out. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, part of the reason Peterson looks at the church and Christians and says, eh, I'm a little skeptical. Mm. It might be better if Christians start majoring in humility and living out living out the truth as best we can. Yeah. And it, that isn't to say we should, you know, Again, if a close reading of the New Testament reveals a number of things. Number one, we are judged by God according, really, our allegiance and our works. Those those are the two things that that keep getting that Jesus keeps bringing up when he has these little judgment day talks. Hmm. You know, whether you do what I say, and you know whether whether you're faithful and loyal to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and and another piece of that is that we. We never fully measure up here. We we always, and this is what I think Calvinism gets right. We always stumble. We always fail. And so finally, we are saved by grace. And and Christians have to figure out how to embody that message in their lives. And I think if we do so, we'll probably get further along in terms of presenting a compelling witness to this world rather than running around talking about this truth that we have that we can't really live out. Hmm. That That's helpful. It, it reminds me of another Lewis essay, um, Meditation in a Tool Shed. Yeah. And, and it was what you talked about earlier, and you did this and this. And right. And and the the closing of either eye, the, the moderns say, the moderns want to reject the first-person perspective. Let's get to the objective truth, the third person perspective, and that's that's uh, the world as a as a place of things, and that's right. what Lewis talks about. Looking at the beam, and you can see the fibers, you can or uh, the light, and you can study that. And then the, the postmoderns want to look along the beam, and they want to see what you can see by it, and they want to focus on the first person perspective and neglect the third. We can't know the third, and sometimes I think Christians argue as moderns. And, yes. and they say that this is the truth and we can all know it and we can grasp reality. And that's the facts of the matter, ma'am. And that's that. Right. And I, I don't think uh, I think we need both perspectives in a Lewisian fashion. But but then Thomas Nagel writes the view from nowhere and he says the exact same thing. Reality right. is bigger than objective reality. Right. Right. It, it just blows my mind to think about that. And that was that's kind of our, our Christian heritage anyways that we should have been holding on to. I, I talk about it in terms of a monarchical vision. Mm. What modernity suggests is that we can possess a monarchical vision. Well, what's a monarchy is, is, is one, mono, yeah. um, mono, monoarchy. I mean, you're studying Greek. So mono yeah. is one, arche yep. is both first and, and principle. You mm-hmm. know, arche, 
typos, archetype, yep. monarchy. I mean, all all this, all these words come from the Greek. And so people imagine that they can have a monarchical vision and they can see the world as it is. Oh, really? I'm skeptical. <laughs> you can't. You can't. Because what happens when you do this is you forget that, and Peugeot puts this very well, you're a pattern looking at patterns. Mm-hmm. And this is where psychology and Peterson's first talk in Vancouver one comes in is saying the pattern that you are is going to impact the patterns that you're seeing. It's sort of like if you've ever tried to let's if you've ever tried to take video from a moving car on a bumpy road. Well, yeah, there's an objective world out there, but your camera's going like this because and it's only this big and you're only getting a certain element of the physical of the of the light spectrum and 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 we know this yeah so please you know i appreciate the fact that part of what we do with science and the scientific image is reduce reality down to certain cause and effect exchanges that's a powerful thing it has afforded us technology and and science and all of that is good mm-hmm. but understand don't forget the trick that we used to achieve that and act like we're not using that trick. And that's exactly the lie of modernity. And so post-modernity comes along and says, aha, you're liars. It's like, okay. But then Lewis basically says, you can see through everything, but the purpose of seeing through things is to actually see something clearly. Right. And what, and so then the lie in post-modernity is, ah, you're all seeing lies and you're all telling lies. Okay, well, is that telling of it also a lie? Mm-hmm. You you yourself are dissolved by your own solvent, so you have nothing to offer. Mm-hmm. So, and this is where, you know, Christians are going to have to learn to embody this truth. Yeah. And that's that's when Christianity becomes impressive. Yeah. And that that's also where Lewis is most quotable, where he's he's uh letting the snake bite its own tail. And he says, you know, to continue seeing through everything is to be blind. Yeah. It's philosophically slit your own throat. Yeah. yeah, man, that's, that's so good. So, um, so Paul, I don't know how, how familiar you are with like, like Herman Bobbing. You're in the, the, the reformed church. Yep. Are you, are yep. you a Bobbing guy yourself? I, <laughs> I'm from, I have been schooled in his tradition and I'm a product of his tradition. So he and Kuiper are of course the two big lights out of which my tradition flows, but I am woefully uneducated in them partly because I haven't read Dutch. I don't, I can't read Dutch. And my grandfather, my grandmother kept whittling down my poor grandfather retired preacher's bookshelf until she gave him one shelf that was this big. Uh-huh. And so basically all he had left on that shelf were, were Kuiper and Bobink and Dutch. And by the time he was too senile to remember what he was reading, he would sit there with Kuiper and Bobink and he would always say, I really like Kuiper, but Bobink is so sweet. So, but I myself have not, um, have not made my way through now. Bob Inc. has, has recently been, um, you know, there's a lot more Kuiper and Bobbing stuff now in English than there ever was when I went to seminary. And so mm-hmm. that stuff is now available, but I have not made my way through it yet. Yeah. Well, I, I bring it up. Uh, yeah. And, and a lot of, uh, some of my friends are translating that and it's been fantastic. They come on the podcast, talk about it, but he's, he's been getting at this for a while. The Dutch tradition has been getting at this, right. that there's this equal ultimacy between the one and the many. 
And the one of modernity, the monarch monarchical view is the one. It's kind of a monism. And then the the pluralistic uh, many view is we're all just these little sub narratives, but there's an incredulity towards meta narrative, right? And and Bavink and Kuiper and the Dutch tradition has been saying there's an equal ultimacy. Why? Because there's an equal ultimacy in the tr the triune God who made us. He's not more one than he is three, and he's not more three than he is one. So we would expect to find this in reality, this insoluble problem between monarchy and you know poly polyphony or something. And uh, I've just found that so helpful. That plus the the archetypal language that he uses, and so it's cool to find that in Jordan Peterson, and he's kind of priming the culture to hear some of this rich Dutch, you know, from your tradition, which is fantastic. Well, let's we'll, we'll see if uh, we'll see if the we'll see if the Dutch reformed can get out of their own way to actually make a contribution. <laughs> That's usually the problem. Yeah. But it's but but again, if you think about the so if you look at Kuiper's story, for example, so Kuiper Kuiper and Bovink are both are both raised and schooled and educated in the liberal you know high liberalism. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, higher criticism, but it, it you know it hadn't didn't quite have the sophistication in the 19th century that it would grow in the 20th century as it continued to develop. But so they they both were steeped in deeply. See, you gotta it's it's the labels are difficult right now because they have changed. Right. Uh, deeply theologically, you know, it's high theological liberalism, mm -hmm. and so Kuiper, of course is is working on that stuff and then he as was the case of many young preachers he had to he'd leave the university and he'd leave his studies and he would have to you know he'd have to go to work in a church yeah and in a church suddenly you begin to recognize that all of that theological liberalism is of no use to people especially in the Netherlands who are milking cows. <laughs> you know, it, this stuff is you, you you've taken the bible away from them but but a lot of these people are like you're taking my bible over my, you know, cold dead hands. Right. And so what these guys begin to learn in the context of the church is real faith and real piety and now then they're going to have to say well, there's some reality to to what modernity has brought to the conversation that has to be contended with, yeah. but you cannot lose the faith. And so in a lot of ways, Kuiper and Bovink had been dealing with this stuff before, um, you know, uh, before, you know, Bart, for example. Yeah. You know, Bart had to had the same kind of thing he had to deal with, and people can decide whether you know neo orthodoxy is really a way out of it or not. At Calvin Seminary, when I was there, we weren't taught much neo orthodoxy because basically they said that it doesn't finally fully help. But Kuiper and Bovink got further in. Yeah. So yeah, that's 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 my legacy in the Christian Reformed Church. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, so Paul, something that that's that I've been encouraged with. Um, in listening to you, and even uh, I listened to your take on um, William Lane Craig and Jordan Peterson. They were talking about meaning, and they got down to morality and stuff like that. And, and you you had mentioned uh, different types of apologetics and and how Craig's is a certain type, and it's helpful to some people, but there's other types. And that's the other type is what I've been more interested in lately of reasoning discourse uh the socratic club style stuff and i think that's kind of what you're doing of presenting a picture of christianity but it's to to quote van hooser it's remythologizing theology 
it's not taking away the myth. It's not, you know, subjecting it to the third person perspective only, but it's, it's just using different language to, to flesh out the beauty of it. Um, what, what role does, does myth have in helping us with the meaning crisis? Well, well, we should ask ourselves, well, what is myth? Yeah. Myth is in some ways, you know, archetype and story. Mm -hmm. And we are astoundingly mythical creatures. Um, my, you know, my wife is always frustrated by how big my ego is. And, and that might not, you know, people that might not necessarily come through on my YouTube channel, but um, I, in, in, in some ways I cannot live without being a myth. I, I, I am a, I, I tell, I create myth about myself and, and that in a lot of ways is how to address the meaning crisis. Hmm. Now, the difficulty, the difficulty we have, and, you know, Peterson is wrestling this with this in his conversation with Peugeot, mm -hmm. well, where does the myth and where does the physicality, how do these things meet? That's the question. And of course, with Christ, well, the, yeah. the logos becomes flesh. And but I myself am a little myth, and I myself am physical. And you know, cognitive scientists will also tell us in terms of our myth making, we, we develop a lot of BS about ourselves. And yeah. that BS about ourselves gets, you know, let's say you're a wrestler and you think, I'm you've learned some moves, you've learned some tricks, you think, I'm the best wrestler around. And so you're wrestling in your high school and let's say you're at the top of your little division in your city, what have you, then you go to college and what do you learn? It's not the case. Oh, there's a lot of, they're better wrestlers than me. Suddenly your myth gets you know, your physicality drops your myth yeah. down. It's a little and, too close to home here in Paul, <laughs> <laughs> but Hey, but now meaning, because you say, if I really want to be the best wrestler in the NCAA, if that's, I don't know if that's the, what, you know, that's right. I yeah. need to, well, what do you need to do then? You need to train. You need to discipline yourself. You need to diet. You need to, you know, hit the weight room. You need to do all of these things. It, 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 and there are cheap, you know, there are, there are cheats along the way. Like, Oh, I need to get on roids. Yeah. Okay. You may get some muscle now, but you know, when you're 30 or 40, you're going to pay for that. Yeah. So, um, and, and so myth is something that it's, it's out there in the big world, but it's also inside of us. Mm -hmm. And so we do have to, in some ways, remythologize and, and, and live in the world of myth for us to finally, you know, if, if Michael Jordan, you know, one of the best NBA players that we've ever seen, um, you know, not that tall, mm -hmm. not that strong, um, you know, very, you know, obviously a top athlete, right. but I'm sure there've been many who are more athletic than him. Mm -hmm. You know, he, in some ways, and when you listen to that, um, that thing that, you can, you know, that long documentary that was released fairly soon. Yeah. He's a very mythical being. Mm -hmm. Michael Jordan is, and he never would have achieved what he did on the physical basketball court without that mythical aspect to him. Mm -hmm. And so any, any human being that actually accomplishes something dramatically excellent, it's often because they're fairly mythical. 
That is such a great point. That comes that that uh, happens in wrestling all the time. Where I mean, if you looked at him, if you looked at the, these two wrestlers in the world of things, and you looked at their oxygen levels and their blood and all this stuff, you could say this guy's going to win. And then the other thing happens, and the other guy wins because he believed it about himself, and he thought I'm the baddest dude around. You're like well, you're actually not. You shouldn't beat this. You have no business beating this guy. And then he beats him, and it's like, well, what happened? How were you able to do that? And it's it's like a weird self deception or like. You just believe this. And because you believed it, it's helped you beat this other guy. Yeah, that's an important point. That's crazy. And and we love it in sports. That's why we watch. Mm -hmm. And it's why we look at movies because that's the story of movies. It's because this guy should win. Why do we cheer for the underdog? (laughs) Because the underdog is mythic. Yeah. And the other guy is just physicality. Yeah. Well, and Paul, in a sense, that's also like a, an archetypal myth of the underdog, and right. and we root for them, and we want to see that instantiated on the basketball court, as as it is in the football, or on the wrestling mat, or uh, in the business world, or in the stock market, if depending on what stocks you're holding. But yeah, that that's really interesting. So so that's what we have with myth. Uh, does Peterson's conception of myth differ significantly from Lewis's? That's a really good question. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I haven't had that sense. Peterson. Yeah, I don't, that's a really good question. Well, in in my in my read, so I I think I understand Peterson's more than I understand Lewis's, and Peterson's is on this hierarchy of um, or this this developmental ladder. And, uh, you know, you have action first and it's acted out by all your ancestors. And then we kind of start to form words and we acquire language. And then uh, it, we don't have the conceptual tools yet to abstract out truth from uh, our, our action, which has been passed down. But we we can make myths and myth comes before religion and religion comes before philosophy. And I think maybe philosophy is kind of the, the, the top tier where we're able to abstract out in, in fine grained detail. Uh, philosophers think that. I, I think I think I think religion finally trumps philosophy. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. Um, but maybe he's thinking con- conceptually or something. Um, but but Lewis's myth, I don't. I mean, he's so into Norse Norse mythology and stuff like that. I, I'm not sure if it's the same conception or not. Well, well, Peterson definitely tries to tell the story, the evolutionary. The evolutionary, the evolutionary development story of of maybe an account of where myth might come from from below, yeah. And that, and and Peterson's Peterson's attempt at doing that definitely gives him credibility among the those who sort of like to think of themselves as atheists. Yeah. Lewis follows Chesterton more in some skepticism about that story. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I don't think, I don't, I don't have a problem with Peterson pursuing that because I think if there's something we can see about this world, it's that God works through process. Mm. And so highlighting the process does not necessarily take God out of the equation. That's sort of where in some ways 
certain. So in the in the 19th and 20th century, had this big fight between modernists and fundamentalists, yep. because basically, as knowledge kept moving forward, we saw more and more processes behind the world that we arrived at. Mm-hmm. Fundamentalists wanted to imagine when God speaks the world into being, things sort of pop into the world like in I Dream of Genie. Right. I don't even find that in the Bible hmm. because if you read Genesis one, you know, let the sea bring forth, bring let forth. the ground yeah, bring them. forth. Exactly, he, yeah. he, he calls, he calls this order, you know, he calls this differentiation out of the raw material. Mm-hmm. And so I don't see, I, I think the, the fundamentalist instinct of trying to protect God by turning God into Barbara Eden and I dream of genie doesn't help the case. Right. Um, and so Peterson wants to track, he wants to look for the footprints of this and yeah. fair enough, Lewis and Chesterton and Lewis, especially in miracles, you know, his argument is that you know, God is coming down with reason and reason is colonizing matter. Yeah. And, and then the grand miracle, the central chapter where, you know, where logos main, you know, becomes flesh comes down into and pulls everything up with him. I think that's much more Lewis's. Um, I, so I think Lewis would be skeptical. And, and I think rightly so that we're going to be able we're going to be able to actually account for myth hmm. finally and fully, just like reason. And again, reason yeah. in Lewis's book, Miracles, does a lot of weight, does a lot of carrying. Yeah. And, you know, Luther might be a little more skeptical, but this we're getting pretty far down into the weeds with this. Yeah. But um, I, I think I think it's fair. So, so in some ways, Peterson wants to sort of construct a Tower of Babel, mm-hmm. but the Tower of Babel story still governs in that you're not, oh man, you're forgetting who you are. Mm-hmm. You're not going to get it up to the sky. Mm-hmm. It's, um, and there's a God in heaven who finally might, you know, say, wow, pretty impressive. But, you know, even what we would think now, how, how high of a, how high of a tower can you build to heaven? Right. Well, heaven isn't just above the atmosphere. Yeah. You don't have what it takes to do that construction. Yeah. Yeah. And even still, even if it even if Peterson is right, a good Calvinist can say, well, God ordains the ends and the means. And so, you know, that, that when I when I would think of and read Joseph Campbell and the the myth uh the hero with a thousand faces, you can go one of two directions. You can go the naturalistic route and go see. See, Christ is just another instantiation. Or you could say, see, the whole world has been about this. And every good story has to have creation, fall, redemption, and consummation in order to make a good story. Because that's the kind of beings we've been made. We've been made in this, the image of the being who told the greatest story. Yeah. And yeah. so it kind of just has to do with your your prior commitments there. Um, but but I do think I, I'm tempted to, to agree with Lewis that there is something supernatural about that. I, I think even more so in in our language and our ability to... Uh, form concepts and i think you know you trace you start tracing that back and you either get to this is where lewis says about reason you can have reason coming from non uh, from reason but if you have reason coming from non-reason we got to cry halt right, right and i think the, right. the similar thing with language you know you right. you have language all the way back to a god who taught adam how to th- how to speak 
and he, he was actually forming concepts with him. However, he did that, whether it was, you know, took a uh, evolved being and then said, this is the one that I'm going to make Adam or whether it was a people group or whether he was young earth, you know, either way, we have to have God um, triangulating with the, the creature. And then we get concepts. You and I are talking today with it, or you have non uh, non concepts and non language giving rise to language and concepts. And that is much harder to believe for me. Well, especially because what in the, I mean, even when we say, well, God took a, we almost, we almost fall into the trap of saying God was just walking around and found it as if it came from somewhere else. <laughs> and no, it didn't come from anywhere yeah. else. And, and the same with, and, and so, you know, so, you know, conversations with Verveke about this, and that's sort of where a lot of our conversations have gone. I have no problem go for it, push this stuff as far back as you can, but the potentiality in the, the building blocks that you are seeing something emerge from Mm -hmm. who built that potentiality into the entire framework out of which this would come. I mean, because at some point you bump into the question that potentiality had to be in push it all the way back to the big bang or to, you know, inorganic molecules that potentiality had to be there for it to emerge yeah so you're still not out of the box yeah and even even if you've got someone really smart like james tour who's like y'all are y'all are just waving your hand saying well if we throw these inorganic you know elements and compounds together that life comes out Mm -hmm. you even have the blueprint and you can't do it so stop talking about, oh, we all know that this just happens right. and that they're and, and then the more interesting question for me is always, what are we so afraid of? Yeah, of 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 saying this stuff is owned by someone. Mm-hmm. Why that terror? And I think that is exactly what we find with um, Adam and Eve hiding in the garden. That's the terror, yeah. because now suddenly, oh, we, we look around at this garden and we can own this place, but mm-hmm. then the owner shows up and we know we, we, we're outclassed. We yeah. can't compete with this. Mm-hmm. And so then we hide and we play games and we deny and we, you know, I have all these, and you can do the psychology on that stuff too. Yeah. Um, we do yeah. all of those games. And at some point that, because the, the sheer terror is, what if the owner of all of this stuff isn't finally for us because mm-hmm. we can't compete, we can't withstand, and then death and nihilism is the only mm-hmm. is the only hope we have. Yeah. And Christianity comes and says, "Well, I have good news for you that that He made you for glory, mm-hmm. and if you'd stop, if you'd please stop the idiocy, mm-hmm. you can know that glory, and you can know the." you can know the king of glory. And so open your gates and let him come in. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the glorious news of the gospel. Man. Amen. I, I don't know if it's in mere Christianity or a different work, but I, Lewis talks about dread and, and this kind of dread feeling of, I mean, it's probably mere Christianity talking about ghosts and you've, you've brought this yep. out in some of your work as well. And yep. it's like, there's a, a force here. Problem of pain. Okay. Problem of pain. And, and it's a, uh, 
it's a personal force. And that's terrifying because there's a person here and exactly what you said. And whoever, there's probably all sorts of psychological states going on. Maybe I've trespassed or maybe I, I, I owe him something or maybe he's bad and he's going to torture me forever. But yeah, the, the good news. And I like how you flesh that out. So I think ultimately your answer to the meaning crisis, you say one word, it's, it's glory, right? That's your answer. Yeah. And it's, it's, and it's joy. Yeah. 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 Glory and joy. And, and those in encompass inherent to those are meaning, but, but the, the pinnacle is the, is the joy and the glory. Yeah. Um, Paul, we, we kind of fleshed out the difference between uh, the meaning crisis for women and men and how women have a biological advantage over men, especially in this culture. Does, does glory, is, is glory the same answer for both men and women? Is it fleshed out differently or is that, is that ultimately both men and women are the, the, the meaning crisis is solved for both in glory? Well, so think about glory in this way. Glory, glory is a funny thing. Hmm. Um, someone produces a cake, let's say, and let's say it's a world-class baker. What is, what is, so, so glory isn't a static thing. Glory is, glory is a drama and so mm-hmm. let's imagine this cake baker bakes a cake puts it in front of a group of people and says i bake this eat it it's good isn't it it's good isn't it it might be a great cake let's imagine let's imagine the the the, the baker putting it on a table walking behind one-way glass and watching mm-hmm. and someone sees the cake and cuts a slice and says oh this is this is this is amazing and then and hey come here come here come here try this isn't it good notice how glory multiplies with humility yeah and how glory is spoiled and and so you know the power that that human beings have in this world follows this glory and and i don't see a whole lot of difference you know there men and women you know, men and women are sort of like this, yeah. you know, so, we've got so much in common yeah. and we got these few things that, that differentiate That's us. That's really men, good. I like men that are, you know, we're a little bit bigger, we're a little bit physically stronger. We don't live as long or I think maybe just cause I'm a man, I think we're a little simpler or mm-hmm. not as sophisticated. Sure. Uh, women are, you know, a little bit smaller, not as physically strong, but their bodies are more durable. They live longer than us. They're more sophisticated, mm-hmm. more relationally sophisticated in some ways. And so we're, we're really close to each other. And, you know, sexually, we provide one piece, they provide the other. And I think that's that's absolute genius, because what it means is that we've got this creature that is just so close to us, but we can't actually find our potential without figuring out how to relate to the other and oh the marriage and figuring that out and you know there's no end to there's no end to the competition between men and women <laughs> it's, yeah. it just goes deeper than we can go but and and i think actually in that you know it's interesting to see how often the bible riffs on that hmm. because you know christ and the church um, Christ and his bride, you know, Ephesians five men and women. And, mm-hmm. but that's always balanced with other things. I mean, Jesus, to the best of our knowledge was single. The apostle Paul, to the best of our knowledge was single. Um, and so that, that keeps from making, 
biological union the ultimate? No, right. it's a it's a it's a second order good. It's a wonderful good, but it's not it's not you can be single. You don't have to procreate. Um there are higher goods that can be, but these are there's creation is you know, creation is fractal in how these things get laid out. Mm. And so yeah, men and women, we have we'll keep we'll keep working on that puzzle until Jesus comes and then Jesus says you know something about you know won't be you know married or given in marriage in the age to come and it's like oh gosh how to get our minds around that right, one right. but uh, okay we'll 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 trust God for the 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 sexual arrangements of of the age to come right. we'll, we'll we'll leave that to him but until now it's it's like God you know the best the best kinds of puzzles are the ones that if you have a puzzle that's absolutely unsolvable you'll work on it for a while and you'll throw it away in frustration mm-hmm. if you have a puzzle that's partially solve, solvable and it's like oh so then you have the aha and the achievement yeah. but then you realize oh i there's more to it and then you do it some more and then you stop oh and you know, it's it's sort of like Bitcoin. The more you mine, the the harder it is to get more. And <laughs> reality seems to be made that way. Yeah. And it's for that reason that I think all of the atheists that say, oh, eternity with God would be boring. And so that would be torture. And I think, oh, you don't know my God. You don't yeah. know the levels, the levels to which he goes. And, you know, even someone like Neil deGrasse Tyson in a very interesting video says, well, there's this funny dynamic about the more that, you know, the more, you know, you don't know. And, and this world, this creation, creation 1.0 has that dynamic. How much more won't creation 2.0 continue that? And, and that then gives, gives, gives really encourages me that the life for which Christ is preparing us now we will go further up and further in and, and because our God is inexhaustible, our life, our life pursuing him into eternity also will not be exhausted. And that's a very good thought. I think that's fantastic. And even if we didn't have the the future, the the promise of the future, you know, uh, Earth 2.0, Universe 2.0 to explore forever, we could explore the past forever. Like like the, all the different perspectives, you could see all the little micro dramas happening between this frog, you know, about to starve to death and finds the caterpillar just in time or the angels battling demons to get some message to someone. The whole the whole universe, this theodrama is made up of all these billions of smaller dramas we could explore and get to know our God and how he acts uh, to, to save and, and to be just again and again and again and again. And that would be ultimate. That would, that would be so meaningful and so, so interesting for eternity. But yet we do have 2.0 to continue living as well. Um, so, Paul, to, to finish up here. Is is glory something that we can have now? Can we ever finish that puzzle? Can we be in that state? You said it's not static, but can we be living in that story of glory now? Or do we, like Lewis, are we are we made for a different story that we'll experience when the uh, archetype comes back again? When when Christ returns and uh, inaugurates the eschaton, I guess we're we're in the foothills. I think that's what Christian theology about the now and the not yet tells us mm-hmm. that we we. 
we begin to taste it. But if, but of course, glory is something too large for us to, you know, this is my whole illustration about the cake. We can't wield glory. Mm-hmm. What we do is we sort of, we sort of build the altar like Elijah on Carmel and say, it's up to you, Lord, hmm. you know, you know, show us your glory. I think this is why Moses, you know, says, you know, I, I want to see your face. And, and God says, you're not, you're not ready for my face yet. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you a taste. You're not ready for my face yet. And um, I think that's where we're at. We're not ready for his face yet. Hmm. And of course, Lewis's best novel, Till We Have Faces, yeah. you know, explores that to a degree. Mm-hmm. But we're not, you know, it, glory, joy, they're gifts. They're gifts. Yeah. And so what we have to learn is, first of all, to stop grabbing, stop punching, open our hands to receive and trust that our Heavenly Father has good things for us, mm-hmm. and he will he will raise us up and grow us up to um, to be ready for his face. Yeah, Amen. I I like your that your answer is glory as well because it's also an apologetic for evangelism. And you've talked about this. I always think of you know you eat a really good steak, and if someone said you're not allowed to talk about it ever. It would, the, the the whole experience would be diminished because I want to talk about the steak. I want to talk about the cook. I want to talk about the experience. I want to talk about how much it cost, how juicy it was, how you should go there as well. And that's really what evangelism is supposed to be. That's right. Yeah. And I, uh, that's why I appreciate the apologetic that you're taking of come and, come and taste and see through dialogue, through discourse. And I'm not going to be offended if you say some heretical crap. That's okay. I'm a big boy. Let's talk. And that's why I appreciate about you, man, and 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 I'm I'm seeking to emulate that as well, uh, Paul. If people wanted to uh, to get to know this glory answer more and and to to get to know more of your stuff, where can they find you at? Up oh, my YouTube channel, which is just Paul Vanderclay, mm-hmm. and um, I'm if you just go to Google and type in Paul Vanderclay or YouTube and type in Paul Vanderclay, it reliably brings me up, and uh, awesome. I've got I do. I do a, I do usually I usually do about 6 videos a week so I've got a tremendous amount of content out yep. there. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, was, um yeah, yeah. that's just like you know when you started talking about the shape of my project right now so mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, man, I, I really appreciate the work you're doing. Uh, and I hope this has been just kind of a start to a conversation because there's so much that you have to say that I would love to talk with you more on. Um, so please come back and, and uh, regale us more with, with more of the, the wisdom from the, the white beard there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. This uh, this Hopefully this conversation will continue, but for now it's going to have to do it. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.